Welcome to Behavior Babes podcast presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha, joining us today we have Dr. Jonathan Tarbox. Hi, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Can you start by giving us an introduction for our listeners to who you are? Yeah, sure. First of all, Amanda, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun. I love talking about behavior analysis. I'm a big geek. And uh, so, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, So, yeah, my uh, by way of intro, uh, my main job, my sort of day job is I'm the founder and the program director for the Masters of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis program at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Um, and I'm also the director of research for First Steps for Kids, a sort of medium-sized ABA agency uh, headquartered in the LA area. And then I'm also the editor-in-chief of the journal Behavior Analysis and Practice, uh, which is sort of uh, one of the premier uh, peer-reviewed journals that publishes articles that are uh, directly relevant to practitioners working uh, on a day-to-day basis in applied behavior analysis. Um, and then I also edit uh, a series of books for Elsevier Publishing Company called Critical Specialties in Autism. And so basically I identify topics that uh, are in need of a book for practitioners, and I invite top people in the world to write a book on that topic. Um, and then they develop the book, they write the book, and we publish it through Elsevier. Um, so basically uh, those are my – oh, and I'm the uh, program – Let's see, what do we call it these days? The program co-chair for the annual ABAI convention. Uh, so basically, uh, I and uh, Federico Santabria are in charge of the overall conference for the ABAI uh, conference, the entire program. So that's kind of a large task. Um, and then also the same program co-chair role along with Ruth Ann Rayfeld for the uh, ABAI autism convention. Uh, so, yeah, those are my... Those are my many jobs, but my favorite job is I'm a dad. I've got three kids, um, and that's my uh, my very best reason for living and coolest thing about my life. But I'm a big behavior analysis geek, too, so we can talk about that today. <laughs> um, I like how you go through it, uh, your your stuff, your accomplishments, if you will. Um, not even your accomplishments, just, that's just your current, like, job and, and task, and Oh, and by the way, I'm a program co-chair for ABAI, and um, <laughs> um, I think it's, it comes off as kind of humorous because you're so casual about it, but I don't think that's because you're, you're dismissive. I think it's because you've got a long list of things that you do, and you're like, oh, yeah, and that other thing. Um, my first question, though, is going to be how do you manage to do all of it? Um, like, where do you, how do you build in self-care for yourself, Jonathan? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, This is one of my new favorite topics, too. Uh, Gee, I guess I have a short answer and a long answer. The short answer is uh, it, and I'm not going to swear here, but it is BS that you can have it all and do everything. Uh, Humans just can't do that. There's only so much time in the day, and things do get sacrificed and do get prioritized no matter what. And so I think it's really important for us as a community to not – sort of idolize workaholism or, you know, like, you know, the superhero person that can, you know, do everything and have everything. Um, I have really sacrificed many aspects of my life that are really, really important to me uh, to do these professional accomplishments. And is it worth it? Um, Sure, I guess. Uh, (laughs) 
how do you even measure that? Um, do I love the work that I'm doing? Do I think I'm, you know, am I, am I working in a career that I value? Yes, for sure. And also it's cost a tremendous amount. So, you know, uh, I don't manage to do it all. I don't balance it. I just spend all of my time that I'm not with my kids uh, working. And so I don't really have, uh, you know, <laughs> a life outside of work and my children. Um, but that's fine because those are the two most important things. So it, it works for me. Um, but honestly, I kind of don't recommend it. I think it's smarter to do fewer things professionally and really focus and do them well um, and say no. So, uh, yeah, say no to more stuff. So, like, one of my main things that I've been doing for self-care for the last, I don't know, year or two maybe, is uh, I've been collecting a list of professional opportunities that I've turned down. And so it's, I keep it on my computer, and I refer to it frequently. And basically, the more important or the more prestigious or whatever the thing is, the, the better it is that it's on the list. And so I try to put as many things on that list as possible. And uh, uh, I have a, a, a limit that I've put on myself. I'm not suggesting other people should put this limit on themselves, but uh, I've put a limit on myself of no more than one uh, travel uh, engagement per month. Um, because every weekend that I'm at a conference, that's the weekend I'm not with my kids, and my kids are little kids still, <laughs> excuse me, four, seven, and 16, and uh, yeah, so I don't want to take too much time away from my time with them. Um, so I limit the amount that I travel, and I stay in order as much stuff as I can, and uh, when I am home and when I'm with my kids, I'm 100% present there. I also have a pretty strict guideline about uh, my own behavior. When, I'm, when my kids are awake, my laptop is closed, and I'm not looking at my phone. So um, that's a self-care thing for me. Some people probably do social media for self-care because it helps them sort of, you know, attend to something other than work. For me, it's the opposite. I don't do social media uh, more than 15 minutes a day, and the reason for that is so that I'm 100% present when my kids are awake and in my presence. So those are the things that I do. I don't know if they're <laughs> the best things to do, but so far they're working more or less. I really appreciate the idea of making a list of the things that you're turning down. Um, I am a fan of lists. I make lots of lists lots of times, and sometimes I get a lot of satisfaction out of making those lists. But <laughs> I will find, you know, a strategy a friend shared with me who's also a behavior analyst was that there's always something on your to-do list and mm -hmm. it's actually um, really helpful and was shifted my perspective a lot when instead of looking at the things I didn't accomplish in a day, I try to reflect on the things I did. And that worked mm -hmm. really well with my desire to make lists. <laughs> and so maybe there's something motivating out of my, my um excitement of lists that could help me say no more. So whatever works for everybody, each other, each of us, I think is really important. But I have to say, you're one of the first people that I've asked that question to that gave like tangible, you know, step one, step two, this is what I do for me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've been working hard on it because about, I would say about three or four years ago, I got to the, because here's the thing, like all these you know, accomplishments, right, on my Vita, like the program co-chair of the conference and editor-in-chief of journals and stuff like that. That, I mean, that's incredible. I'm really proud. It's an incredible opportunity, a privilege, frankly, that I've been given these opportunities. Um, and also, like, I 
you know, they happen. Those opportunities occurred in a way such that, like, I didn't know the other ones were going to occur also, if that makes sense. So, like, strategically, if I said, you know, if I was given the opportunity, there's three different things you could do. Pick one. It would have been really smart to maybe, like, pick one, you know. Um, and so a few years ago, about yeah, I guess about three years ago, I, I got to the point of noticing, like, this isn't this is ridiculous. Like, I'm just killing myself uh, for my career. And, what, like, what's the point? Really? Like, you know, what, what am I actually getting out of it? Where are my values? And I'm not totally sure that having a bigger CV, uh, you know, more accomplishments on your beta, I'm not really sure that those contribute at all, that that specifically contributes at all to what I really care about. Like, I care about making a difference and making a contribution. Of course, I want to be acknowledged for my work. I want other people to notice, and I want it to affect them in a positive way. But I don't think I need to do a million things <laughs> to achieve that. Right? I think, like, a reasonable amount, you know, that works uh, is fine. And I think, I don't know, I, I, I think it's, I think we could do better as a culture to, um, to spread around the opportunity and the attention and the acknowledgement for folks. I think we can do a lot better at uh, giving people who maybe aren't part of some special in-club at whatever journal or whatever convention or whatever, uh, giving them opportunity and propping them up and amplifying their voice. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what I've been working on. Well, giving other people those opportunities will only increase the conversations and the diversity, and it will also help um, someone like yourself or myself say no, right? I can say right. no if I can say, here's someone who can. And yeah. um, that actually allows me to say, you know what, I'm not saying no. I'm just saying someone else has uh, that skill set. They can do it. That has been, for me, very helpful in the transition uh, towards at least more awareness of self-care. I'm not in any way going to say that I have mastered that. I did a talk once called like harmonizing school and life and work. And I was like, we should just title this hypocrite or pop yeah. in the kettle. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, I right? feel you. <laughs> like I can go around and preach what we should do, but it becomes harder to practice it. And, you know, changing your environment is a big part of doing that. And so people do that in a lot of different ways. Of course, as a behavior analyst, we're always looking at the environment. Um, one of the reasons, though, I had invited you to talk with us today was to talk about some of the great work that you're doing with acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's uh, an environment or a situation in which people are not always looking um, they're not always sure what to be looking for or where to get started. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping maybe you could do an introduction and get us going in that direction with the conversation. Yeah, sure. Love to. Uh, so, yes, I don't even know where to start. There's so much I could say. But basically, um, first, maybe I'll give a little intro to just kind of what it is. Um, for folks who are less familiar, um, ACT conceptualizes our daily behavior as choices. And so kind of like, you know, that Skinner box, you got two levers. You got a left lever and a right lever. <laughs> and, pardon me. And pressing these different levers uh, results in different schedules of reinforcement. And basically the way ACT looks at our daily life is the lever on the left produces avoidance of, from stuff that's difficult. So, like, we don't have to face challenges um, if we press that lever. But we also then don't get the big food pellet. Whereas if we press the right lever in that same moment, we do move towards that big food pellet, and it's going to be really hard. So it's 
a really, really big FR schedule or VR schedule that we got to press the lever on. Or maybe we're getting shocked or getting a loud noise or something while we're pressing the lever and we got to persist with it. Uh, but then we get some really big food pellet in the end. So if you want to translate that into our daily lives, it turns out it pretty much applies to everything we do, everything that we really care about, right? Like going to grad school is a whole bunch of work, a whole bunch of aversive stimulation, because in the end, if you persist through it, there's a whole bunch of great positive reinforcers. You get a better career, you get to help people, you get to make more of a contribution, you're more competent in your job, so on and so forth. Um, parenting, showing up and, and doing a great job as a parent is really hard. It's really anxiety-provoking. It's stressful. There's sleep deprivation. But in the end, there's huge positive reinforcers. You get to, you get to have a kid <laughs> and, and, uh, and contribute to your child's life, uh, thriving and flourishing. Um, and in all of those daily choices, we also can choose to avoid. We can choose to space out and be on our phone or social media instead of engaging with our kids. We could choose to grab, drop out of graduate school or avoid applying to graduate school to begin with. Um, so basically, on a day-to-day basis, we've got these choices. Uh, choose the hard stuff that ends up uh, resulting in good positive reinforcements that are long delayed, or choose to avoid the hard stuff and, and you know, uh, get some negative reinforcement and avoidance, uh, but miss out on some of that good stuff. And the important thing to note is no one is pretending that life is that black and white and it's either or. It's the fact that on a day-to-day basis, we're faced with maybe thousands of these choices and the sort of the, to the extent that we push that right lever and we move towards what we really care about by doing hard stuff, we're going to be living a more valued life. We're going to be uh, producing outcomes that we care about more. And to the extent that we press that left lever and, and spend more of our behavior on avoiding stuff we don't want to do, uh, we're going to miss out on stuff that matters. And it's not all or nothing. It's, you know, what proportion of our behavior are we spending on the right lever versus the left lever? Uh, and how can we notice which lever we're pushing? And, and how can we help ourselves make those tough choices more frequently and help ourselves uh, make the avoidance responses less frequently? And ACT is basically a collection of procedures that have been empirically validated to help people move in the direction of pressing the right level more. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, a really clear, crisp description of, of what ACT is, and I know that you've in some ways given us a very broad simplification, so not expecting that, hey, that's it, everyone, you've got all you need to know about <laughs> ACT. Um, but as you're speaking, and I'm sure as others are listening, I'm just constantly scrolling through my life and my choices in my day, right? Like, yeah, totally. There are dishes in my sink. Um, been avoiding that for a long time. But, uh, you know, some of these things are like, why Why do we avoid, right? Or mm-hmm, why, mm-hmm. why are we willing to put so much effort in one thing and not in another thing? And mm-hmm. I think, of course, what we know about behavior analysis, matching law, delayed discounting, a lot of mm-hmm. these understandings of reinforcement and and um you, you spoke a lot about you know negative reinforcement right the mm-hmm. the avoidance or the removal of something aversive really mm-hmm. and that tends to be a lot of things in our lives yeah for sure <laughs> for sure so Definitely. what are some um recommendations for information research uh, where should people go if they want to start to learn more about this yeah absolutely so uh, so, well, 
folks made the first right step, which is listening to this podcast. <laughs> the next step uh, is uh, go check out a few other podcasts. So there's some other good podcasts by me and Tom Sabo, Evelyn Gould, Mark Dixon, Ruthann Rayfell, TJ Moran um, on, you know, the behavioral observations, why we do what we do, you know, various podcasts. So check those out. Um, Steve Hayes has, has several really good ones. I feel like those, in a way, give, give folks the clearest introduction. And then after that, what you'd really want to do is read a how-to manual on how to do act inside of ABA, right? Well, guess what? It's never been written. <laughs> there isn't a single book on how to do ABA for behavior, or sorry, how to do act for behavior analysts. Um, there's some curricula published by Mark Dixon, the AIM curriculum, and his earlier book, um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for Kids with Autism and Other Emotional Challenges. And those are kind of like uh, source materials, sort of like examples, if you will, of exercises and procedures. Um, but there still isn't a how-to manual uh, on how to actually do it um, uh, from a broader perspective. So Tom Sabo is actually working on writing that right now. Um, and hopefully that will be published in the next year or so, and that will be really good. Um, so, But since that doesn't exist yet, um, probably the next best thing people can do, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, it's a little bit different. Uh, we don't usually hear this recommendation for behavior analysts. Uh, but I think the next best thing people can do is go buy some ACT self-help books and try it on yourself. And so, uh, and, and here's the reason why. I'm going to ask all of your listeners to think back to the first time that they remember seeing positive reinforcement work. And maybe it was a child with autism, and maybe they first saw that, you know, the light bulb go off over the kid's head, and they first saw oh, what I do really matters. Like, I just shaped that kid's behavior. Like, wow, that kid can man for this now. For the first time, he's never been able to do that before, and now he can do it, right? And I totally see the connection. There's the MO, there's the behavior, and then and there's the reinforcer, and now the kid can do it, right? Um, so basically, you're going to have that same experience, but the behavior, instead of being someone else's behavior, it's going to be your behavior. And the environmental manipulation, instead of something that you're uh, – manipulating for a client, a client's behavior, the environmental manipulations are going to be you reading the book, that's the antecedent, and then you doing some stuff, there's some responding, and it's not just going to be one behavior, it's going to be lots of behaviors, and then you noticing the, out, or, uh, the outcome of, of, of you behaving differently. And I want to emphasize for folks to check out uh, The Reality Slap by Russ Harris and read that book and just use it on yourself. And what you'll notice is your behavior changes. Your overt behavior changes in socially meaningful ways. And a big part of the reason why is because the way that you respond to your own private events becomes more flexible. And so difficult private events become a context for doing a variety of things, including avoidance, rather than in the past, difficult private events maybe were a context for mostly engaging in avoidance. Now maybe you'll do a little bit of that plus some other stuff, trying some other stuff, including trying some hard stuff that moves you towards what you really care about. So I highly recommend for readers to check that out. That's a great place to start. Wonderful. When we are thinking about changing behavior, we um, sometimes, you know, gather a bunch of skills and have obtained a lot of success perhaps with our clients. And, you know, we've not – we've made some mistakes along the way and we've made some really amazing accomplishments. But then when we stop and look and are confronted with the opportunity, <laughs> I like to call it an opportunity to take the science of behavior analysis and look at ourselves. 
it can be really uncomfortable, right? Like, um, we might know how to change. I'm not sure that we're all ready to change. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I, so I really appreciate the idea of looking at some self-management, self-help, and self-places as a place to start um, looking at um, that experience. And then doing so, uh, for those of us who have done some of that, um, it gives me, it's given me a greater appreciation for how difficult it is um, for people to change behavior, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I, I don't mean, if, yeah, of course, like, I know it's not easy, but then, like, when you go somewhere and then somebody else, you know, bootleg reinforcement or sabotages your plan, and then sure. I would go back to a client and I would say, you know, like, in my head, like, why didn't they follow this plan? And then I'm like, I know why <laughs> they didn't. I know why they didn't, because the, cause so-and-so walked in the home and they sabotaged it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like that other extra level of patience for others that um, yeah. is starting to translate, hopefully, into some patience for ourselves. Um, Definitely. You know, you mentioned a lot of the things that you're doing, and one of the things that I really want to hear more about is kindness in ABA. You had kind sure. of put that out there as a title to me. Tell me, what do you mean by, by that? Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, this is a topic I've been really interested in uh, since – Forever. Uh, actually, when I was an undergrad, um, going to a small liberal arts school in Vermont called Marlboro College, not associated with the cigarettes, but just everything is a borough in the Northeast in New England, Marlboro, Southboro, Northboro, et cetera. Um, it's just the name of a teeny little town on top of a mountain in Vermont, and the little college that I went to is named after the town. Um, anyways, uh, my, I was not a psychology major. I was a political science major. And my focus then was on uh, nonviolent, compassionate community building. So how to use love and nonviolence as a way to make, make the world a better place and make the world a more peaceful and compassionate place. And so I was reading stuff by Martin Luther King, um, the Dalai Lama, Gandhi, <laughs> these folks. Um, and basically that's what I was interested in. But then I stumbled on a job in ABA and, and like that, became my career, and it was incredible. And then learning the act stuff brought me back to compassion um, and perspective-taking and kindness. Uh, and so it's kind of cool because it's something I've always cared a lot about and kind of felt like wasn't addressed enough in ABA. And now I'm realizing, oh, yeah, it totally is because ACT is part of ABA. Um, and ACT and actually RFP, too, uh, give us a way to talk about this um, in a way that scientifically valid, but also just useful and works. Um, so I don't know, like I don't have a definition of kindness exactly, uh, but it's kind of one of those things where you know it when you see it. Um, and I think kind of my working definition, uh, and this is going to require some sort of uh, like verbal behavior kung fu in terms of understanding complex human behavior, um, but it's something like treating others well for the purpose of making the world a better place. Like for that person, maybe on a small level, uh, maybe for yourself as well, and maybe for society more generally. Um, so, for example, like, you know, someone falls down and gets hurt and you go and you help them. Uh, if the main reason why you're doing that is to make money or because someone has a gun to your head, that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean, still, it's great that you're helping somebody, but it's, it's sort of about the function that, that, that seems to matter. And so when the function of treating others well is primarily to help that person and to maybe make their life better in some way. 
um, and maybe have a larger effect, right? Because kindness can be uh, infectious. <coughs> That's what I'm talking about with kindness. And um, so, yeah, so me and some other folks, and you know, we're not the first people to say this, obviously, uh, but we've been noticing, like, she whiz, you know, in ABA, what we do works. There's no question about it. And uh, pretty much everybody, at least 99% of the folks that I've ever met in ABA, their heart's in the right place. Like, we're here to help people. Um, that's why, that's what, that's what's in it for us, you know. Um, and then, so all of that to me is kind of a given. And then when you look at how we do what we do and the tone of how we talk about it, and frankly, what it looks like to other people uh, is it entirely clear that we're doing this work because we love other humans and we want to help them. Um, or maybe perhaps sometimes people get the impression that maybe, I don't know, we're control freaks or that we're too bossy or too dictatorial. Um, and maybe we care more about, quote-unquote, socially appropriate behavior um, than, than, you know, constructs that the rest of the world talks about, like, you know, kids being happy or thriving or feeling supported or feeling loved. And I think if you hang out with behavior analysts, you know those criticisms aren't really accurate, right? Like if you hang out with behavior analysts, you know they care about helping people. There's no question. Um, but is that really enough? I mean, you know, is it enough to just kind of know it ourselves within our own very strange little community that's almost cult-like? Um, or is it also important to make it really clear that other people know it as well? Um, and so, you know, if we ask ourselves, uh, do parents feel taken care of? And do our clients feel taken care of? Uh, when we're asking asking them to do the hardest things maybe they'll ever do in their life, right? Like parent training, uh, doing extinction for the kids' tantrums for the first time might be the fight of that mom's life. And do they feel like taken care of? Do they feel like surrounded and, and, and supported and propped up by us? And sometimes definitely yes. And sometimes I think we could be doing better. And how about the kids? Like kids with autism, do they feel like we have their back more than anybody else on this earth? Like, do they feel the level of support and love that they would feel if they went to, say, a really good social worker or a really good um, psychologist or just a really great teacher or mentor or coach or somebody like that? Are they feeling that same level of love and support from their BCBA? Um, and I think sometimes definitely yes, and sometimes we could be doing better. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. That's a general perspective. Well, I mean, I think we mostly can agree with everyone on this podcast that the world could use a lot more kindness, no matter how much it has. And I think, you know, the question that, that you brought up, and I really appreciate how you constantly embed behavioral principles, but in a way that everyone can digest, um, you know, is how do we measure this? How do we measure all these things? And, um, you know, Scott Geller's done a lot of wonderful work in getting people to care, and he had done some things with bracelets or other ways to have tangible measurement. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think you offer something that most people can relate to. is like you kind of you see it. You know it when you see it. Um, but how do we get it occurring on such a large level that everyone feels it? 
Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, mm-hmm. that's not a question we're going to answer today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let me, <laughs> let me share an example, um, if I may. So my wife, Courtney Tarbach, who uh, is a full-time clinician at First Steps for Kids, she runs – actually, she's the assistant uh, clinical director now for the agency – um, and she helps with development and training and all that stuff and sort of part-time research, too. She doesn't really have a lot of time for it, but she manages to crank it out anyway. Um, but she's actually doing she's an evaluation project right now on some uh, modifications to extinction that are designed to make extinction be experienced as more kind than maybe normally it is other times. And so, for example, and this is going to sound really weird, but trust me, we have some data. Uh, what we're doing is when the kid has problem behavior, we're not going to give them the functional reinforcer. So if the functional reinforcer is escape, we're still going to continue with whatever the task command was, but we're going to be a little bit extra nice, uh, contingent on problem behavior. So, for example, if the kid who say, okay, bud, you know, it's time to do your work, and the kid screams and throws himself on the ground, here, here's the protocol. We go over to the kid, and we pat him on the back and say, I know, it's so frustrating. I know you hate this work. I'm so sorry, and you still have to do it. Come on, buddy, I'll help you out. Let's go get it done. And so we continue to present the same rate of demand as we would have otherwise, but we're throwing in some kindness on top of it. Now, we're not going to do that if the function is attention, obviously, right? So that's uh, response contingent attention. Uh, but we decided to just test it out for uh, tangible and escape functions. And we've done it so far with five kids, and it's worked great, like really, really solid. And we haven't directly compared it to extinction where we're not adding in kindness. So I can't say we've compared it. We don't have comparative data. But I will say uh, the data are like really, really solid. Uh, maybe the fastest extinction I've seen maybe ever in a couple or three of the cases. So uh, that's how we're defining it, just in this one little simple, overly simplified treatment evaluation. Like the, the operational definition is just <laughs> be nice to the kid and express that you understand why he's upset, contingent on the kid behaving inappropriately. I'm smiling, which you can't see, but it reminds me of my <laughs> dissertation, which was, um, you know, if we have fun before we place demands, will work yeah. be less difficult go. or tough, yeah. right? I love that. Um, obviously, that's not the official title, you know, we can look that up later, but it really yeah, came yeah. down to what do we mean by pairing? What does it mean to have fun? What does it mean to look, you know, like humans and also yeah. to be systematic and replicable and precise and it is a really interesting uh, balance right on how to be Mm -hmm. scientist and you know someone everyone can relate to so I want to let me if I may just say one more quick thing about that I totally agree with that and here's something a little bit spooky if no one has ever empirically tested whether we have to leave out all that kindness stuff then the assumption that we need to is actually not based on research. Like we know that the traditional way of doing extinction works, but we don't have any evidence that you can't also be really nice while you do it, like zero. So it's kind of weird, right? Like we need to actually test it with data before we can go around saying we've got to do it this way or that way. So 
yeah, oh, that's a I really, really great point there. You know, no, I mean completely because there are so many procedures and things that as behavior analysts or even, you know, doctors do this and lawyers, everyone, right? Mm-hmm. You're taught mm-hmm. something and you do what exactly. you were taught. And so mm-hmm. we continue, of course, with continuing education. But if we're not continuing the empirical investigation, then we're just having the same conversations. And so, yeah, yeah this is an excellent way to kind of, or not to kind of, but to continue that empirical investigation and the conversations of why we do what we do and how can we continue to have the effects and, you know, be nice about it (laughs) (laughs) or be perceived (laughs) nicely about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and and we're going to have to circle back because there's so many more things to talk about. But before I do, I wanted to give you an opportunity to shout out any current activities, projects, recommendations, anything yeah. that you want to share? Sure. Okay. So for sure, folks should get to uh, the Autism ABAI Convention. It's a long flight from Hawaii, but it's in Miami. No, sorry. For, for long, no, Miami. Uh, in, the, in the winter, uh, that'll be a great one. So check that out. And the call for posters is still open. So I don't know when you're going to publish this podcast, but folks might be able to sneak in a poster uh, proposal. Um, the WEBA, Women in Behavior Analysis Convention, is also awesome. That's in Nashville in March. People should check that out. Just Google Women in Behavior Analysis. Um, and then also there's ACT Boot Camps, which are four-day intensive training where you get all of the CEUs that you need for your entire recertification period, including supervision and ethics, all in one four-day thing. And they're specifically designed for behavior analysts. So if you Google ACT, boot camps for behavior analysts, you'll find them. And there's usually one in the spring and one in the fall. Uh, Spring is on the east coast, fall is on the west. No, sorry, the opposite. Spring is on the uh, west coast, fall is on the east coast. Um, And they're really, really valuable training experiences. And then uh, the last thing I want to plug is Steve Hayes has just published his new book called A Liberated Mind. And it is uh, the product of seven years of work writing uh, a book on uh, behavior analysis for the masses. And it's uh, basically, it's, it's ACT, but he goes over behavior analysis, he goes over uh, relational frame theory, functional contextualism, but all in a way that's super user-friendly because it's intended for the general audience. It was published by um, Avery Books, which is like one of the biggest uh, book publishing companies in the world being translated into like 10 different languages or something like that, it's going to make a big, big impact on a broader scale. Like we're talking dissemination outside of the behavior analytic community. And so I invite behavior analysts to check it out. You can listen to it on Audible while you're driving to your sessions. Um, And just every time he says the word mind, just stick the word private events in there. If it freaks you out to hear the word mind a whole bunch, just remember he's talking to everybody else, not us. Um, and just stick the word private stimulus or private behavior for both in the place of mind, and everything else works and makes sense, and it's 100% behavior analytics. It's just talked about in a way that makes sense to the broader community. I highly recommend folks check out The Liberated Mind. That's wonderful. And I'm thinking right now I need to update my website. I need to put some information and maybe some links to some of these upcoming events or just where people can access Steve's book, Um so I will do that. Thank you, Jonathan, cool. <laughs> for the prompt. Um, and thank you again for joining joining today. Yeah, it was a lot and, of fun. I appreciate the opportunity. And I'll see you real soon. I was going to say, and we'll have you back, and we'll have you out here in Hawaii. And 
um, hopefully you can maybe you can, I can get your help, recruit your help in getting some of those resources up. But for That's anyone right. who's interested in checking out what Jonathan and I might put together, uh, go ahead and take a look at www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.